Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to be here once more as you have called us to be here, to be filled with your presence, with your spirit. We're hungry for you. We're thirsting for you. Fill us, O oh God. Satisfy us. In Jesus' name, amen. Bill Thomas was a young, inexperienced doctor when he became uh, the medical doc- director of a nursing home in New Berlin, New York. And this was in the mid-1990s. What he saw there in this nursing home shocked him because, you know, he had read about this at, at school in, in, in books, about the, what they call the three plagues of nursing home existence. And he saw it with his very own eyes. And, and what, are these, uh, what are these three plagues of nursing home existence? Well, it's, it's, there's, it's boredom, loneliness, and helplessness. And it was killing his patients, literally killing his patients. So he came up with a, with a plan. It was a simple enough plan. And the plan is to bring in lots and lots of plants into the home and bring in animals into the home and also bring in children into the home. The, problem, the only problem was everything, all the rules in the house said no way. But Dr. Bill Thomas could not be deterred. He started out with, you know, started off with the, the easiest ones to overcome. He brought in plants, potted plants, and he filled the, the home, uh, the nursing home with lots and lots of plants. And that was not a problem. But then he started to up the ante and he started to push the envelope a little bit more. And he started asking questions, what about, let's look, what about dogs? And of course, once the conversation started about dogs, you know, uh, it, you know, people started talking about it's against the code. Well, then let's just put it down on paper. And they put it down on paper and magically two dogs appeared. The good young doctor would not be deterred. Two dogs magically appeared, and after that battle was won, Dr. Thomas kept going, and he started asking new questions. He said, what about cats? Cats? You want dogs and cats in here? The question, the question kept rising, and, and, he said, and he said, sure, why not? And so the good doctor was on a roll one day, however. He didn't stop with cats. By the way, two dogs and five cats. Five cats appeared. Uh, in the premises. And then one day he saw this picture, or he, he, he had a picture in his mind about birds flying all over the place. And he dreamed, he said, I'm dreaming of 100 parakeets in this house. And everybody said to him, 100 parakeets in this place? You're out of your mind. Have you ever lived in a house with two dogs, five cats, and 100 parakeets? And he said, no, but wouldn't that be something? And by the way, if I were to deduct the 100 birds, I could probably say that I, I've seen a house just like with two dogs and five cats or something like that. It would be my mother-in-law's house. <laughs> Minus the parakeets. We used to have, you used to have par- a parakeet. No, two. two parakeets. But this is 100 parakeets. And add to that, children that would visit the facility, it was pandemonium. The, the facility came alive and something extraordinary also started to happen in that house. Mortality rate, 
fell by 15%. And prescription drugs, especially the mental health drugs, fell by half. We simply cannot deny how connected we are with the world around us by design, not by happenstance, by design. And we simply cannot uh, deny the fact that we are very connected, not just to the world around us, but to the people around us. We are, as it were, attached at the hip. Whether or not we like it, whether or not we realize it, whether or not we admit it, the more connected we are, the more alive we become. Isn't that true? We're human beings and no man is an island. The more connected we are, the more alive we become. And conversely, conversely, the more disconnected we are, the quicker we wither and die. It's just the way God made us. And perhaps in Scripture, the most moving example of this connectedness, this deep spirituality of connectedness, can be, can be seen in the, in the first century church that we find in, first, in, 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 in the book of Acts, in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, especially the Jerusalem church right after the Pentecost. Fresh from the afterglow of the resurrection, the church in Jerusalem was in a near-perfect state of connectedness. And by that I mean vertical connectedness, connected, connected with God, and horizontal connectedness, connecting with people within the church as well as outside the church. In Acts chapter 4, which was beautifully read to us today by Jonah, in, verse, in those two verses, we can find the four marks of, of this deep-rooted connectedness that the church enjoyed in, in those days. What are these four, uh, four marks of a deeply connected church? Um, well, uh, once again, these two verses summarizes them, uh, these essential qualities. But I want to tell you that these four qualities or characteristics are not, or e- are not all equal. Not, in other words, one, actually, is the wellspring of the other three, of the last three. It's the source of the, other th- of the, of the last three. So we, I want to focus on the first one here. And the first characteristic is this. The first characteristic of this deeply connected church is this. That they were, as our scripture tells us, that they were united. We find this in... in um, in verse 32, in the first part of verse 32, actually the, the New Living Translation, which was uh, read to us by, uh, by uh, Jonah today, says, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And that's what I chose uh, to, to, be, to be the title. I use that phrase or the, the, the translation as, as the title for, uh, for the this, for this sermon. The, all the believers were united, it says, in heart and mind. Now, if we use another, another version, which I'm going to use, the new Revised Standard Version updated edition, um, it, it says, you know, it words it a little bit differently. And here's what it says. The first part of that verse, it says, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. Heart and soul. Now, I want to start with that word heart, 
Because the heart, in, 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 in the biblical reckoning, is not the physical organ. It's not your heart. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the heart is actually the kidneys. It's translated as heart because that's how we understand it. Um, and, and, you know, as, as, as Westerners, but if we were, if, if we were to strictly uh, translate the Old Testament rendition in many times of the word heart, it's actually the kidney. So heart is not the physical organ. What is it? It is that function of the mind. It is that function of the mind that acts as the driver's seat and the control center of a person and even of a group of people, of a community. But the heart, you see, but the heart only acts, does not act really on its own. Here's part of the secret of the heart. Uh, Biblical understanding of the heart and actually also the scientific understanding of that heart if, if we understand heart as not being the, that organ, is that the heart needs to be attached to something else, so to speak, in order for the heart to start moving, to come alive. The heart only acts when it is attached to something, not physically, or attached to someone else. In order for the heart to come, come alive, it must do one thing. It must fall in love. It must fall in love. And it is this falling in love that moves the heart to act. Back in the day, uh, and, you know, and we've been heavily influenced, uh, we ourselves and even our church, the church, the Christian church, has been heavily influenced by um, by uh, enlightenment presuppositions. And one of those key enlightenment presuppositions is this. You, you will recognize this when I say it. I think, therefore, I am. Now, that is a, it's, it's a good, you know, it's a very catchy phrase. Um, but that is only half true. Because uh, science today is discovering that the heart does not just function, does not primarily function by thinking it functions by attachment. Who or what the heart falls in love with. And it is this falling in love, as I said, that moves the heart to action. It is not the will that moves us to action. It is the heart. A heart in love, you see, will, and we can all identify with this, a heart in love will do everything in its power to come face to face with its beloved. So in, in, with the, this definition or this understanding of, 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 of the heart, um, we, can, we can see very clearly that it is that the heart or, or, or that the beloved is what propels the heart to act. So you need to ask yourself this question, what are you in love with today? Or who are you in love with? Who is the overriding love or what is the overriding love of your life? Because the beloved moves the heart. And if that beloved is something less than what God intends it to be, then you're falling in love with the wrong person or with the wrong thing. And it's going to move you to a completely different set of actions as opposed to falling in love with God. 
This is what propels the heart to act, not the will, as Enlightenment theology would normally uh, 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 tell us. You know, you can will yourself to do just about anything. Well, you know what? The will follows the heart. It's not the will that controls our actions. The will only follows the heart. And where the heart is, get this, and this is what Jesus Christ tells us, where the heart is, there your treasure will also be. And by that, Jesus Christ does not mean that's where you keep all of your toys. He means that's where your joy, that's where your delight will be. And guess what? Where will you find, well, where will you spend your time? You'll spend your time with what your heart delights and what you find joy in. And so, love is the spark that ignites the heart. Joy is the fuel that keeps it going. And it is clear when we read and study the book of Acts, especially the first few uh, chapters of the book of Acts, that it is clear that something or someone had captured the hearts of the believers in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem church. And it was no other than the resurrected and risen Jesus Christ. They fell in love. They went over heel, head over heels for Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ ignited their hearts and set it ablaze. And the Holy Spirit kept fanning the flame. And their desire to be with him and their desire to be with each other kept them going. That was their fuel. They connected, not because they had to, but because they couldn't help themselves. Can you imagine? Can you imagine an entire church so in love and so captivated in the heart? Can you imagine our entire church in this way, united in heart, led, which led to the next thing, uh, in, in this verse, it says they were united in heart. And then the next phrase says they were united. In, um, oops, that's not where, where that should be. Uh, okay, I, I, I wasn't able to put the, the other verse. Anyway, the other verse is the one that's, that's, that's uh, a little um, shaded right there. Um, now, this, I, I told you this is the one characteristic that, that, that defines um, a, a very well-connected church. But there's a, a second part to this, uh, to this verse, and that is a, the, the part that says, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. But I'm, I think, moving ahead of, ahead of myself there because we need to finish that last phrase or that, 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 that first clause where it says, um, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, or in the New uh, Living Translation, um, says, one mind. What is this soul or mind? Well, I want, you, I want you to take a look at, at, this, um, at this kind of a, a, a rubric here, um, which is basically gives you a, kind of a, a a, a metaphor of how, you know, the different functions, the different parts of the individual. You will notice that there are different parts of what makes us tick. 
um, and in this metaphor of the human self, it applies not just to individuals, but applies also to an entire group of people or to, a, to an entire church. The soul or the mind is the organized sum total of all that goes on in one's life, internal, bodily, and relationally. That's what, that's what the, the soul is, or that's what the mind is. As a matter of fact, the, um, uh, the word that is used in, um, in, in the original Greek, the, the, the word that was used, uh, that is used there is the word uh, that we translate in English as psyche, psyche, the soul that organized um, some total of our existence, which we could probably um, translate best at, with this one word, life. So the church was united in heart and in life, in the direction, in the characteristic, in the quality of their life together. The soul is the quality of one's life organized and controlled by the heart, which drives action. And scripture tells us that the Jerusalem church to a man united their lives to such an extent that the next three characteristics became inevitable. And what are they? What are these three other characteristics? Well, they were selfless, and we find this in, that, in, in the first part of verse 32. I mean, second part of verse 32, there, there it is, now I found it. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. This is a little scary to, to a lot of us, right? Uh, because um, this sounds to me like communism, right? Um, but no, this is really, uh, the communism that we know is really, uh, we, is basically uh, Soviet Union and, and China and all that. So it's, it's, it's really not the real thing. And notice that um, when we read our scripture, especially uh, in the book of Acts, that it, that it didn't say there that, you know, the, the whole church became one collective, uh, the church practiced collective ownership, um, you know, like, like, you know, like uh, what happened in, in the Soviet Union when there was forced collectivization and um, the, uh, the, the government of the Soviet Union forced these people in, in, in Ukraine to, uh, to uh, collectivize and, um, you know, all, their, all the land. And, and, and so uh, one year uh, in the mid-1930s uh, when, um, uh, when, when harvest came and and the government took all of the harvest and then left over 5 million of those poor individuals in Ukraine to die hungry, starving. They were selfless really only means or basically means that whatever the need was, it was provided for. And whatever was necessary to meet that need, they were so selfless that they met those needs. And when, and when, as we find just in, in the next chapter over in, in, in Acts chapter 5, when that selflessness was threatened by someone within the ranks who withheld their possession when there was a pressing need and there was a promise made that no less than the Holy Spirit protected the integrity of their community to keep that heightened sense of connectedness alive within the, the community of the New Testament church there in Jerusalem. They were selfless, 
But they were also, they were also passionate. Verse 33, uh, the first part of that says, with great power and power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were passionate in sharing the good news to everyone around them. And then the last one is that they were very captivating. They were lovely people. It would seem, it, sometimes, I think it's, just, you know, people misunderstand what it means to be passionate. Passionate does not necessarily mean that you have to be disagreeable. Passionate, but nobody could live with you because you're so passionate. You live in, in such a heightened uh, a state of, of, um, of spirituality that nobody can live with you. And yet that's what, that was not the case with these um, with these Christians, they were captivating. The people were captivated over them. The, the people found them to be loved. They may not have this, uh, agreed with, with, with what they believed in, but they found them to be lovely people. Their falling in love with Jesus Christ transformed them in their hearts and in their lives. But you know, the church did not just magically arrive at this state of connectedness. Oh, there's number four before I move on, by the way. Um, um, what I said about the capt captivating, and this is what, what it says in, in that text. And great grace was upon them all. They were winsome. They were lovely people. Everybody wanted to be around them because they were just that kind of people. But as I, as I said, this is not something that magically just arrived. This, this state of connectedness didn't just magically appear like those two dogs and four cats. The resurrected Jesus himself provided the spark and the Spirit lit that fire, fanned that fire until it spread far and wide and it was to become the longest and most important spiritual awakening in the history of the world, the results of which we still feel today. Even today, we are still reaping the benefits of this massive spiritual firestorm started at Pentecost. Malcolm McDowell and Alvin Reed, in their book, Firefall 2.0, describe in detail the long history of this awakening, revival, all the way from um, Moses down to the modern age. And, and, and then he, they, they, they describe the, what they consider to be the greatest of all of these awakenings, revivals, spiritual revivals uh, happening within the, uh, uh, the New Testament church. And they, said, they say that uh, it ignited with, uh, with John the Baptist and then it crested with Jesus Christ himself. And then came the Pentecost, and here's what they said. And I'm, and I'm quote, quoting right now. The revival at Pentecost completed the third stage of the New Testament revival. From the time awakening ignited, from the time awakening ignited with John, the revival pointed to the ultimate crest in the atoning work of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The provision for salvation was complete. It is now a matter of announcing that reconciliation with God is available. In a matter of a few years, the Christians, without the benefit of modern resources, 
turned the world upside down. This was achieved as the revival spread from the upper room to the borders of the Roman Empire and even beyond. The disciples knew that there were no outside forces that could stop the movement. From their experiences, they were convicted that they could be stopped only through inner deficiencies in their relationships with God. Those early disciples did not consider earthly possessions of great value. They had heaven's greatest treasure and were armed with the commission to share it. And here's the last paragraph of what, what they said. The awakening at Pentecost is the paradigm for revival. It teaches the church that the church did not start with power. She started with life. And out of that life came power. A desire for revival is a desire for spiritual life. When spiritual life is present, that life produces power. The Holy Spirit does not give power. He gives himself. Where the Holy Spirit is, the power is. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit produced renewal. Did I just repeat that? No. No, I felt like I did. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit produced renewal in the lives of a small group of people who, although unattractive to the world, were open and available to Him. This was the basis for revival then, and it is still God's requirement for revival today. The heart must fall in love with the right person, or it will not drive the right action. It will, not drive, it will not change the life. It might change the life to another, in another way, but it will not change it in the way God desires it. A couple of days ago, I got, I, I got left alone at home um, with a dead car. Um, my kids left uh, uh, for school. Uh, Micah drove my truck. He thinks it's his. My brother's, actually. I bought him a Prius. I'm driving the Prius. Something happened there. My kids left for school, and my wife jumped in, in her pilot, and the battery was dead. So I got left alone at home. She drove the Prius to work and left me to try to resurrect a dead car. And she tells me, call AAA. I called Jim Ferrolino. <laughs> so I jump-started the car using the, the gift that the church gave. Fantastic uh, start, uh, jump, you know, jump started, by the way. And I found that the terminal was corroded. So I checked with Jim. I went to Jim to just, you know, to have him check check the, to see if the battery is, is completely dead or if I needed to buy a new battery. Hey, Jim, should I buy it from AAA? No, 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 AAA battery is not that good. Just let, let, come over and, and I'll check your battery. And he, he did. It's not dead. The terminals were corroded. That's not how, how emphatic he was, but that's how emphatic I feel. Why? Because we must ask the question, which is part of the sermon title today, then why must we connect? We connect because the terminals are corroded. 
There it is. Oh, there it is. No, there it is. <laughs> we connect because the terminals are corroded. We do not have the luxury of being five years, ten years removed from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our minds are clouded. We are in love with too many things. And often not the right things. We connect because the terminals are corroded. And it is through our connection with God and with people that we find life. We find that we can thrive. We connect not only because the terminals are corroded, because, but because we connect so we can become the best version of ourselves. No one or no person lives by himself or herself. The heart survives by attachment. It cannot survive alone. It must find the love of its life. And finding the love of its life, once he finds, it finds the love of its life, it will move into, it will come to life. And it will change your life. Why do we connect? We connect so we, we can fulfill our mission. What is our mission? It's in the back of the bulletin. That's our mission. Our mission is to make disciples of everyone, including ourselves, until Jesus comes. But really, the one and maybe the best reason that I could find as to why we connect is because we can't help it. If we're in love, we have to connect. If the Lord has set our hearts on fire, we must connect to Him. And if the Lord is fanning that flame of fire, then we must connect with the people who help us become better than who we are. That person seated to you is part of your growth, is part of your maturity. Without that person, you will not be able to mature as well. And let's include as well, not just that person seated beside you, but those that are outside the walls of this church we need them too. No, it's not just a matter of they need us. We need them too. Because you see, a heart aflame for God will connect. It's just natural. We connect because we are in love. And we are in love with the Lord of the universe. And he commands us to connect, not just with himself, but with everyone else. So we can all finish the task and we can all go home. Salvation is about falling in love with a person. It's about the heart catching that overriding image of what it is to live. Once that vision is in the heart, it drives the entire life. Are you in love with God? 
because he's in love with you. We connect because without connections, we die. But in Jesus Christ, there is life. We connect with him and with each other. And we will live the kind of life that he wants us to live. And we will finish the work that he has given us until he returns. Let us pray. Father God, we believe, but help our unbelief. We love, but we cannot love beyond what we were capable of loving. How capable we are has to do with our woundedness, our sinfulness. We are not capable of loving you. We want to, but we're not able to. So we want to give our hearts to you. We know how much you love us. Help us to love you. And loving you, that we may exercise the same kind of love to those around us. Both with those people that are like us and those that aren't. And to become like the New Testament church. who were so winsome that they drew people to themselves. It showed who they loved. Help us to be this kind of a church, this kind of a family, this kind of a person. For it is only by your grace that we become who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.